Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This is Missing Alyssa, a podcast documentary series about the unsolved disappearance of Alyssa Turney, a teenage girl from Phoenix, Arizona. Alyssa has been missing since 2001. I'm Octavia Zapala, and this is episode 5 of Missing Alyssa. If you haven't done so already, I suggest you listen to the previous episodes before you continue. In this episode, I'm going to analyze some of the most intriguing aspects of this case, all of the pieces of this puzzle that don't fit, and some of the conflicting information we have about Alyssa's last days. At the beginning of this documentary, I read you a letter that was found in Alyssa's room on the day she went missing. It said the following. Dad and Sarah, when you dropped me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. Sarah, you said you didn't want me around. Look, you got it. I'm gone. That's why I saved my money. Dad, I took $300 from you. Alyssa. The note was presented to police by Alyssa's stepfather after he reported her missing. In it, Alyssa wrote that she had made up her mind to go to California. This letter is central to the case because, most likely, it was the number one reason why this disappearance was considered a teenage runaway for the first six years. Perhaps, if it weren't for this note, an actual investigation would have taken place back in 2001, and other leads would have been followed. One thing is certain. Alyssa wrote the letter because it's in her very own handwriting, which has been analyzed and compared by experts in this field. But nobody knows when she wrote it, nor what the circumstances were. Consider for a moment that the letter was not a runaway note. I have collected testimony to the effect that there might have been another explanation to her words. More about that later. The first problem with the note is that it appears out of context with the events that, according to Michael Turney, occurred that day, raising the question of whether it was even written on that day at all. If you remember episode one, Mike says that on the last day, May 17th, 2001, he took Alyssa out of school early. Then they went to pick up lunch, and then they went home, where they had an argument. After the argument, he says he left the house, and when he returned home that night, she was gone. So the letter um, says, when you drop me off at school today, I decided that I really am going to California. This is Detective Summershoe speaking. Why is it, doesn't she say, after our big fight, or after you took me out of school, now it's when you dropped me off at school. So that, that seems to reference an earlier event right. or some other time. And the reference to California is... Um, 
I've spoken to her aunt. So then you, you know about the discussion right. they had before Alyssa went missing. Right. Talking to Alyssa's family, in fact, I learned that a couple of weeks before going missing, Alyssa spoke to her aunt Lynette. Mike calls Lynette to tell her that he was having difficulties with Alyssa. He asks her if she can take Alyssa in for the summer. Lynette lives in Ontario, California. Well, I got a phone call from him that Alyssa was doing marijuana, and I talked to him a little bit about it. Don't, you know, and then I talked to Alyssa, and she was telling me that her dad was freaking out about her smoking marijuana. I talked to her a little bit about it. I said, you know, you're 17, you're going to be almost 18, just, you know, hang in there. You don't have very much longer, and when you turn 18, you can move out. That call came out of the blue for Lynette, because she had had no contact with Michael or Alyssa for years. After Barbara's death, the relationship between Mike and his wife's family turned sour. They say Mike cut off ties with them and returned any greeting cards and money they sent for the children. He also changed his home phone number. However, Lynette agrees to let Alyssa stay with her for the summer. He had commented uh, uh, quite a few times that he was going to send her to me, and I told him, that's fine, send her to me. <laughs> if you can't handle her, that's fine, she can come here. I don't think Michael ever planned on that. This is Teresa, Alyssa's other maternal aunt. I think he planned on the fact that he had kept those kids from us for so long that we would say no. I think he panicked because I think Alyssa was ready to tell, and I think that's what the problem was. And my journey was not going to let that happen because his behind would be in jail where he is now, but it would have been a long time ago. And he knew that that girl, Alyssa, was going to tell me what he was doing. And he knew that I would turn around and call the law on him. And he had been gone. So why do you think so that, that he asked you if she could stay at your place then to begin with? Because he, you know why? He thought I was going to say, no, I don't want her. She's too much of a problem. Two weeks after that call, Lynette received another call from Mike telling her that Alyssa had run away. Another woman, Linda, who was Barbara's best friend until she passed away, said that the previous year, in 2000, Mike had approached her with the same question. Would she take Alyssa in because he was having issues with her? Linda accepted, but Mike later came back saying that Alyssa did not agree with this arrangement. Linda never confirmed this with Alyssa herself. One of Mike's sons, who at the time had a stable living arrangement and a long-term partner, also invited Alyssa to stay with him, given the various issues Mike was having with her. But again, Mike refused, coming up with a reason why that would not be possible. If you believe that that phone call with her aunt is connected to the note Alyssa wrote, there could be several explanations for her writing it. This is pure speculation, by the way. The first reason is that she could have written it on her own. Then, when Mike found it, he panicked. And if Mike Turney went into her bedroom and seen what she had wrote and said, okay, well, you know, I can't let her to go to California because I know she would have told me what was going on. Alternatively, he could have been the one to urge Alyssa to write that note. One of the things we found in the search warrant was that Mike is very, um, 
contract oriented. Um, he would have Alyssa sign contracts and he would get them notarized, you know, behavior contracts and things like that. And being as litigious as he is, he's very oriented towards documenting everything. So if Alyssa was planning on moving out of the house and going to visit her aunt and, uh, you know, these were things that were discussed, he would probably want it written down so he'd have it documented so nobody later on could accuse him of neglecting his child or, or abandoning his child or abusing his child. But when she wrote that note, it was not a runaway note. It was a note to say, okay, I'm going to go to California. This is what I agreed to. Michael's the one that portrayed that to be a runaway note. I agree that the note does sound out of context. If Alyssa made up her mind to run away in the morning, before being dropped off at school, why would she return home with her dad after school and bother arguing with him at lunchtime? If it were me, I would have taken off directly from school. And if I had gone home with him first, perhaps to pack my belongings, I certainly wouldn't have a futile argument with him over the summer schedule, given that I knew I wouldn't be there anyway. If anything, I would lay low to ward off any suspicion, don't you think? Besides, in the note, she says, that's why I saved my money. Alyssa had saved $1,800 in her bank account. If she was saving it to run away like the note suggests, why didn't she take the money? Mike wasn't forthcoming with anyone about picking up Alyssa early from school, not even with his family, keeping that detail to himself. Does that strike you as odd? It does strike me as odd. He didn't give me a reason because I didn't know until the show came out. Um, which if you look at the show, neither did, I want to assume the rest of the family. I can't remember the exact conversations, but if you look at the show, my oldest brother is in the interrogation room and he says, I didn't know he picked her up early out of school that day. Why would he do that? Cause he didn't tell the family. We had no idea that happened. Um, so that was a big change in the game for everybody. I think everyone found out only after 2020 came out. Once he was already locked up in jail, she asked him why he did that. I did, and I think it was another one of those dodging the subject. It was a whole thing. I kind of came at him with everything. Well, this is what I thought. Well, then why didn't you do this? Or why did you take her out of school that day? And he just avoided it. And again, it's too painful to continue to bring up with him, knowing that he's completely deflecting the subject. It's just way too painful. But Mike does give ABC News an explanation for his actions that day. He says it was Alyssa that asked him to pick her up early. Why did I take her out early? Partly because, as I recall now, because it's, again, I've had a lot of time to think about it. It was part because Alyssa wanted to avoid her boyfriend, because she wanted to break up with him. And the other was because of the fact that we needed to get Sarah, because I wasn't sure when Sarah was going to get out, but I wanted to get Alyssa, because if I didn't pick Alyssa up, she would get mad at me. <laughs> I have two objections to that statement. First of all, all of Alyssa's friends say that she and John, her boyfriend, seemed really happy together. Besides, John testifies that the last time he saw Alyssa was when she popped her head inside his woodshop class to say goodbye. She told him her stepfather was there to pick her up early and that she would talk to him later. If she was trying to avoid him, I doubt that she would have gone out of her way to say goodbye. John said that she seemed normal. Secondly, Mike gets Alyssa from school around 11 a.m. 
But Sarah didn't get picked up until a long time later, at least 5 p.m., probably later than that. Another big mystery in this case is why there isn't a home video surveillance tape of the day Alyssa went missing. As I've said before, Mike had a camera outside the front door and one hidden inside the vent of his living room. But he has been inconsistent with what happened to those recordings of the day Alyssa went missing. According to Lynette, Mike had told her back in 2001 that the cameras weren't turned on that day. But in other instances, he says he does have those tapes. He says that in 2001, when he reported Alyssa missing, he offered the 8-hour VHS tape to police, but they weren't interested. Then, when authorities asked him to provide the security tapes around 2007, Michael says there was nothing of interest there and he decided to discard them, or to tape over them. What he means by nothing is unclear to me. They would have shown Mike and Alyssa return home for lunch, having a discussion. They would have shown him leaving the house, and then they would have revealed what she did once he was gone. At the very least, they could have shown what she was wearing. It could have proven that she walked out of that house alive and well, and that the events of the day matched Mike's story that she ran away. Between 1970 and 1974, Mike worked as a Maricopa County Sheriff's Office deputy. You would think, with, based on his prior experience, his uh, paranoia, mm-hmm. um, his experience as being a private investigator, that he would know that evidence should be preserved. Um, and that if you have a video of the day your, your daughter went missing that shows the activity inside the house, that is something that is very valuable not only for the investigation, but if you're worried at some point you may be accused of something, you think you would produce this tape. Look, this tape shows us having an argument. I left the house, and then she left after I was gone. I had nothing to do with her disappearance. In the 2020 episode, you can see a segment where detectives are going through a huge Rubbermaid tote filled with VHS tapes. We got through most of the videos. Um, the And... The 2020 episode maybe characterized that, that these were all security tapes. A lot of these tapes were commercial tapes. The things that he had preserved was that argument between Alyssa and her boyfriend, Alyssa making out with a boyfriend, uh, and things like that. What detectives had a lot more of were recordings of the phone calls that went through that house. And the audio tapes, thousands of them, are, like I said, it's a wiretap that lasted for 20 years, basically. We have tapes from going back to the, the 70s, because that's when Mike started recording and there, you know, it's endless hours of fax squall because the fax machine was hooked up there. It's, you know, tapes of the people calling Blockbuster, you know, calling the movie theater, ordering pizza, things like that. Mm-hmm. Every um, conversation is recorded there. But not the one where Alyssa calls the house one week after running away. Michael tells detectives that a recording system wasn't turned on that day. He says he was asleep when the phone rang around 5 a.m., On the other end, Alyssa was swearing at him and telling him to leave her alone. She was agitated and argumentative. It was May 24, 2001. The call lasted only 29 seconds. Mike asked the phone company to provide the phone records, and when they refused, he sued them. He managed to obtain what's called an AMA-dump. That stands for Automatic Message Accounting. It provides information about any incoming and outgoing call specifically the number that called, the exact time, 
and the geographical location of that number. It appears the call came from a payphone located inside a convenience store in Riverside, California, perhaps a 76 gas station. Mike says he went there to hand out flyers and ask anyone he could if they'd seen Alyssa, to no avail. Of all the people that she would call, the only person she had issues with was her stepfather. Why didn't she call her boyfriend? Why didn't she call her friends? Right. Call her brother, John. She was very close to him. She didn't call any of these people. The only person that claims to have seen or heard from Alyssa after her disappearance is Mike Turney. Reading through police interviews, I saw that many of the people that knew Alyssa expressed the same opinion. They say that if Alyssa had ran away, she would have called a number of people before reaching out to her stepfather. Her brother John, whom she was very close to, her boyfriend, which she loved, or one of her many close friends. I also learned that within a year of Alyssa's disappearance, Mike sold the vehicle that he owned at the time she went missing. It was a 2001 green GMC Sierra pickup. And we called it the Frog, and he sold it right after, and he bought a bigger, big white truck. Um, so that green truck that Alyssa had been in that we was our family vehicle, the, the police never searched. They searched the brand new truck that she had never stepped foot in. Mike was also really familiar with the desert just north of Phoenix. He used to practice target shooting there all the time. He took his family to the desert on numerous occasions for paintball games and for driving their ATVs. He was also intimately familiar with Stowman Lake, Blind Lake, and the Bloody Basin area. My dad and brother used to shoot in the desert all the time. Um, and I remember one area specifically is where Desert uh, Ridge is now. We used to ride our go-kart, and I believe he shot some targets there as well. Um, but when that was desert, that was one of his main places to go. Interestingly, after Mike got arrested, Sarah was going through some old possessions and came across a map of California. On the map, there was some notations of numerical coordinates. So after I moved into my house, my boyfriend and I were going through a box and we found a map. And he had Googled the coordinates and he said, oh my God, this is in the middle of the desert. And so I immediately scanned that and sent it to the police. And the Sarah can't locate this map any longer. She thinks she might have mailed the original to police at their request. Correct, because I'm an idiot slash too trusting. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there, there were um, places in the middle of the desert that were circled. And we oh, sent okay. it to the police, and they had no conclusion for it. So I didn't really investigate further. Do you remember where in California? Was it, like, desert center area? I see, and I don't, I don't know if I think it's center, desert center because that's been brought up so many times or because it actually was. Mm-hmm. Like, my memory is so clouded with all the new stuff. Um, I, I don't know. Right. I just remember it well, was literally in the middle of the desert with nothing around it. But other maps were found during the search as well, including one of the Sonoran Desert National Monument, a huge desert area 60 miles south of Phoenix, and a topographic map of an area in southeast Arizona and southwest New Mexico. In an email to Sarah, Detective Summershoe once wrote, 
There are a number of cryptic, unexplained things in Michael Turney's possessions. Unfortunately, the key to all this lies with your father, and he refuses to cooperate. If you look at it compared to the show Hoarders, it looks a lot like that. She's referring to the way they used to live here. So there were Rubbermaid totes filled with paperwork everywhere. But a lot of that was just paperwork. And honestly, I don't know what it was. Um, I'm guessing from his lawsuits from so many years, things that he had filed. So he just didn't like to throw things away, but... As I was recording this podcast, one day I get a call from Sarah who was going through some old boxes of her father's. She had found a VHS tape with a label that read, May 27th, 2001, H&H Concrete Slabs. How odd. May 27 is exactly 10 days after Alyssa disappeared. Unfortunately, we will never know what was on that tape, since the contents have long been taped over. A quick Google search revealed a company in nearby Mesa, Arizona, called H&H Concrete. They are a concrete subcontracting business established in January of 2001, so just a few months prior to the date reported on that tape. I gave them a call and spoke to the business owner. She told me that they have never heard of the name Michael Turney. She also said that, as subcontractors, they never do work for individuals, only for general contractors. This tape has been overlooked during the search, so Sarah urged Detective Summershoot to look into this lead. A few weeks later, he told her that he followed up with H&H Concrete, and that he believes that the tape was probably related to a civil case attorney filed against them. Something about a rental property dispute. Michael Turney was known to spy on and make secret video surveillance of people that he had disputes with or was paranoid about. The search of his home also revealed secret video footage of union members in the IBEW offices. This could just be another one of those instances. Still, it's odd to be focusing on a lawsuit 10 days after your daughter goes missing. Especially since Mike reported being devastated in the days following her disappearance searching for her non-stop throughout that entire summer. Sarah and I started to wonder, can the contents of a VHS tape be recovered once they have been taped over? It seems that, no, that's not possible. Once the magnetic particles of a tape are rearranged by being overwritten, the original information is gone. Some sources say that it is possible, although very difficult, but that the resulting images are cloudy and of little use. As I was wrapping up this documentary, I was very surprised to come across a very compelling witness that I hadn't heard about before. David Garman, that's his name. David is Mike's nephew, the son of Mike's older sister, Shirley. In 2008, he told detectives that he witnessed some disturbing things while he crashed at Mike's house for a few months. At the time, David was going through a divorce, and he'd been battling alcoholism for a while. Because what happened was I just lost a job, and I just stopped drinking, and I was at a very vulnerable point in my life, and mm -hmm. I had to find a place to live. And he uh, basically asked me if I'd help him around the house, get the girls back and forth to school if, I can, if I'm off, because he had told me that he was sick. Yeah, I didn't know Alyssa too well. Like I, I lived with uh, Mike and Sarah and Alyssa for about six months. Um, this would have been towards the end of 1998 yeah, slash early 1999. And, uh, I uh, left abruptly 
um, because of what I found. David witnessed some tension in the house, but that's nothing new. There's a lot of turmoil, yeah, between Alyssa and, and Mike. And uh, um, so, I mean, it, it, it was, uh, you know, she did confine a couple things, but it was, you know, I brushed it off, you know, thinking it was just a typical teenage daughter, you know, uh, um, you know, he's pissed at dad because he didn't let me go out and do certain things. But, but one conversation with Alyssa stood out from the others. One time I picked her up from Barry Goldwater High School and because that's what I used to do to help him out because he was so doped up on psych meds um, it was pretty bad and anyway I went to pick her up one time and she started crying I, I, I you know I, I asked her what was wrong and she said that uh, you know my dad won't let me go to the dance and I really like this guy she didn't mention his name or anything and he thinks I'm too young to be hanging around guys. And, you know, he's such a, I know what kid's going to say. He's a dick. You know, I don't know if I can say that or not. I said, well, look, Alyssa, it can't be that bad. And she said something that resonated with me, and I'll never forget it. She says, you don't know him like I do. That's one of the few conversations I had with her that I recollect very well. I get really kind of creeped me out. So, What's uh, more alarming is that one day Mike made a strange revelation uh, to David. Mike had told me something uh, in the, when I first moved in. And, and, you know, looking back now, I can see why he told me this. But he uh, more or less told me that he at one time, because Melissa, Melissa was so out of control, that he had to handcuff her to a chair and gag her. That's what he said, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, at the time, I thought that was really unusual that he would bring that up. And looking back now, uh, I think the reason why he did that is because um, I think he was afraid that Alyssa was going to bring it up to me. But none of that is completely new to you at this point. The shocking part is a videotape that Dave found that left him no doubt about whether Mike was molesting Alyssa. One day, after his work shift at Sam's Club, around midnight, David got home and everyone was asleep. He picked out a VHS tape from the living room. He thinks it might have been labeled Dr. Doolittle. You know, it was a tape I'd never seen before, and I thought, yeah, let's see what's on there, you know? And I... I it was four. The tape I saw was, it was, it, here's the sick part about it, because he's such a freaking pedophile. He had Alyssa laying down on the couch with just her shorts on, but no bra, no shirt on, her breasts were exposed. But he thought he was so slick, he put a newspaper that covered her eyes and covered the front part of her head thinking that there's no way they're going to recognize that's Alyssa. I mean, that that was Alyssa. You could tell by the profile, long blonde hair, and she wasn't saying anything, and he wasn't saying anything. It was it was eerily quiet. And then it, it went off for like a few minutes, and then the next shot, I swear, I, I, I can't remember her friend's name, but it was her friend. She had long, dark hair, and she was naked too. Just had shorts on, her breasts were exposed, and he had the newspaper over her face, just covering her eyes and her forehead. So, two girls, laying on the couch motionless, naked from the waist up. David has no doubt that the first one is Alyssa, 
and thinks the second one might have been one of Alyssa's friends he had seen before, but whose name he can't remember. What he knows about her is that Alyssa seemed very close to her, that they both attended Barry Goldwater High School, and that they lived nearby one another. He said he remembers giving her a ride once. The other time he saw her, she and her mother came to the house where Mike was having a yard sale. The mother seemed to be friends with Mike Turney. He describes the teenager as having long, wavy dark hair and large breasts. David wasn't sure if the girls were conscious, had been drugged, or had been bribed to pose in that film. It was obvious it was not a tripod. It wasn't in a hidden camera. And it was obvious it was under human control to some degree. And like I said, it was eerily quiet. He, he did not speak while the camera was rolling, and neither did they. Actually, I didn't even watch the whole thing because I was so disgusted. I, I wish I would have kept that freaking cake. David is sure he recognizes the house he had been staying at as the house that was on that videotape. This was the same home I had previously visited with Sarah, the home Mike owned for many years, and where he raised all of his children. Alyssa lived in that home until she was just short of 15. I recognize the old house. Plus, you know, uh, he had that house for, you know, damn near 30 years. I mean, uh, when I was a kid growing up, we used to go over there, you know, uh, visit, you know, uh, our parents would visit, and we'd be over there, me and my daughter. I recognized the couch, and I recognized the wall, and the carpet color, like a, a beige color. I, I mean, when I saw that, I, I, my first instinct, to be honest with you, was to get a gun and shoot him in the head. I mean, I was that freaked out, and I snapped, I lost it. I mean, I just, I packed my car up what I could, in fact, and I left at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was gone. And I didn't come back until a couple weeks later to drop off his key and then grab the rest of my stuff. Do you think he was suspicious? I think he was, yeah. Mm. Yeah, because I left abruptly. I mean, it was abrupt. Right. And I think he was suspicious thinking that Melissa told me some things. And he says, why did you, you know, what's going on with you? And I said, look, here's your key. I'm just grabbing the rest of my stuff. I hope you have a great life. And that was the last time I spoke to him. And I left. I'm not sure why I hadn't heard this story before. Maybe because that tape was never found during the search, David's story could not be confirmed. Or maybe detectives weren't sure whether David was reliable, given that he did have some reasons to be angry with Mike. It appears, in fact, that Mike tried profiting from his sister Shirley's death through a lawsuit that was later dismissed. But I've got nothing to gain by uh, telling anybody anything. I'm just trying to do the right thing, you know? I mean, I love this man. You know, I love this man. He was uh, he was the best uncle you could ever have. And then when I saw that shit, I mean, I, I, my world got turned upside down. The man I love dearly is nothing but a goddamn pedophile. I'm sorry. The only person David told at the time was his Aunt Norma, Michael Turney's other sister. I did tell Aunt Norma that. In fact, I called her and I was drunk. In fact, I was staying in the motel that very day. Uh, the next following day, I called her. I was upset. You know, my mother wasn't alive and I couldn't confide in her. My Aunt Norma, in fact, told me they suspected uh, that Mike was doing something wrong with Alyssa. 
But when questioned by police, Norma doesn't confirm David's story and denies that her brother would hurt his children. I can only speculate that maybe because of these elements, police didn't think David's story made a strong enough case. David is extremely regretful for not having gone to the police or to CPS about what he saw. I think in her own way, she was trying to break it to me. And that's what breaks my heart because, you know, she's just a young kid. And how are you going to convey something like that? Oh, by the way, my dad's molesting me. On May 17, 2001, the night that Alyssa went missing, Michael Turney filed a runaway juvenile report over the phone around 11 p.m. He reported that Alyssa went missing between noon and 5 p.m. that day. He volunteered that Alyssa had run away to California, to her aunt's house. It also says in the report that she packed her clothes and took some belongings with her. I asked Sarah about what they thought she took with her, but it turns out nobody really knows for sure whether any clothing was missing. In 2004, Mike tells Officer Aaron Murphy of Phoenix PD, the case agent at the time, that Alyssa had been seen with a tall, white male with numerous tattoos and piercings outside her work in the days prior to going missing. According to Mike, it was one of Alyssa's supervisors at Jack in the Box named Chris that informed him of this. Mike says Chris told him that Alyssa was leaving work with other men and that she had been seen with this particular guy more than once. Mike comes to the conclusion that the description matches a young man named Paul. We're not going to reveal his last name. He says Paul works for a technical services company located in Phoenix, and he thinks Paul is somehow connected to the IBEW. He adds that Paul was also installing electrical equipment or cables for the computers on the campus of Alyssa's school. Mike now believes that the IBEW paid Paul to take his daughter to California. He manages to track down the company Paul worked for and to speak to a secretary. To his surprise, he says, She answers, Are you a disgruntled parent calling because he hit on your teenage daughter? So Mike tells several people that the secretary told him Paul was fired from his job for hitting on teenage girls. Officer Murphy tracks down Paul as well. This is three years after Alyssa went missing. Paul didn't remember who Alyssa was at first. But after Officer Murphy jogs his memory, he says he remembers Alyssa working at Jack in the Box. He tells her he and his colleagues had lunch at Jack in the Box fairly often. Sometimes they'd go through the drive-thru, and other times they'd enter the restaurant. Alyssa worked the drive-thru. Paul says, quote, The only relationship I had with her was through the glass at the drive-thru window. End quote. They have the usual conversations people have when they run into each other every day. Like, hi, how are you doing? Paul remembers Alyssa was quite vocal and would just start talking. On one occasion, Alyssa told him that she was having problems at home and would be moving to California with a friend soon. Paul says he never saw Alyssa outside of work and never exchanged numbers with her. One day, he went to Jack in the Box and saw missing person posters with Alyssa's picture on them. He says he was shocked. He also denies any involvement with the union. Officer Murphy gets in touch with Paul's boss at his previous job and is told that Paul was fired for excessive tardiness, not for hitting on girls. As far as Chris from Jack in the Box, the one who, according to Michael, said Alyssa would leave work with other men, 
He tells police that to his knowledge, Alyssa was not seeing anyone else other than her boyfriend, John. He described her as being a little flirtatious with everybody, a very lively and happy person. But he says she would never give her number to strangers. Despite what Paul's employer says, Mike tells countless people that Paul is associated with the IBEW and that many people accused him of hitting on teenage girls, apparently trying to plant the idea into other people's mind. Sarah and I visited the very same jack-in-the-box where Alyssa worked. We weren't successful in finding anyone who worked there in 2001, which isn't surprising. Nobody currently working at that location had ever even heard of Alyssa. I spoke to the district manager and she suggested I call corporate offices. At the time of this recording though, I haven't been able to locate anyone who knew Alyssa. I would love to hear what her former colleagues or managers had to say about her, especially Chris. What's more surprising, in my opinion, is that nobody at Paradise Valley High School seems to remember Alyssa Turney either. Not the receptionists, not faculty, and not the administration, or even the current superintendent. Granted, Alyssa would have been class of 2002, which means any student who knew her, even the youngest ones, have long since graduated. But I would imagine the story to have permeated in the collective memory, at least of staff and faculty, it doesn't happen every day that a child goes missing and 2020 makes a story of it. Alyssa's biological siblings, John and Sarah, provide DNA samples to be kept on file by authorities. Her biological father, Stephen Stram, does the same. Mike Turney provides Alyssa's dental records for comparison. Throughout the years, several bodies of Jane Doe's matching Alyssa's description are discovered in California. But none of them are a match. One in particular was found in a desert area just nine miles north of Desert Center. It consisted of bone fragments and a partial skull. The remains were analyzed but were in such poor condition that a DNA profile could not be extracted. However, it is deemed unlikely that they belong to Alyssa because they appear older than 2001. No trace of activity is ever found in connection to her bank account. There's also no activity in connection to her social security number, and no ID was ever issued in her name. All of the puzzle pieces point away from a runaway. They suggest that Alyssa never made it far from her starting point. Coming up next on Missing Alyssa. He said, there's only two people who know what happened that day. One of them is not here anymore. At this point, I think the most logical conclusion is that my father did something to her, killed her, buried her somewhere. They have all the circumstantial evidence they need, but without a body, we have a very small, slim chance of conviction. If you believe Mike and his, his manifesto, her body is in Desert Center, California. Missing Alyssa is produced and hosted by me, Otavia Zapala. Audio editing and production help by Raz Yalov. Our original music was created by Michael Fornwalt. Voice acting by Ben Reichert. The artwork was done by Michelle Reyes. 